everything was manual. So I looked, they, they gave me Excel spreadsheets, they requested sensitive documents via email. And listen, I'm a cybersecurity expert. So when I'm sending sensitive documents, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm sending these documents via email. This is crazy. So I realized that everything was manual and I waited until the entire process was complete. And then I said, you know what? This seems to be a problem because this is my experience. I, I felt all this friction and I had to be doing all these things manually, Excel spreadsheets, sending things um, in an unsecure way. And I said, there had to be a better way. And I, I drafted an email. I said, okay, if you had A, B, C, D, and if it did this for you, would you pay for it? And the consultant, she said, absolutely. When can I start? Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the GMI Rocket Show. This is episode 16. I'm Roman Zelchenko, your host. I'm an immigration lawyer turned immigration tech startup founder and an entrepreneur in the immigration space. And I'm super excited to have my guest today, Orin Cole, who is the CEO of, an, of a Canadian immigration tech company called Case Easy. So Case Easy is a um, case management platform for immigration lawyers and consultants in Canada specifically. Um, and it's really exciting because right now, you know, it's it's October 2020 right now. There's a lot happening in the world, but Canadian immigration is really seeing some pretty good news, um, at least coming from the U.S. perspective. So it's really cool to see and talk to uh, somebody from the Canadian side to hear his perspective on growth in Canada within immigration and sort of how technology is supporting that growth. So thank you so much, Orain, for, for joining today. I awesome. appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Roman. And yeah. welcome to Canada. <laughs> yeah, I know. Of course. Of course you have to say that because you're so <laughs> darn nice. Yeah, it's it's I'm excited for this conversation because, you know, on the US side right now, immigration, you know, as part of sort of upcoming presidential election is kind of a big deal. It's a topic in so many different ways. And in a sense, it's become a lot more challenging over the past handful of years, especially because of COVID, right? COVID just depleted uh, travel, borders closed, etc. And obviously borders closed in Canada, but I think, you know, Canada had aggressive immigration goals to keep up with, you know, demand for new people, for aging population, just you need more people, right, in Canada in a sense. Yeah. Um, and it's been really cool to see Trudeau just kind of say, okay, we're in COVID, etc., but let's keep going with immigration. Uh, are you kind of feeling that at all? Yeah. So when we just experienced the lockdowns, for sure, we, we had some impact with our immigration lawyers on the platform. Some persons, they tend to panic, right, to say, OK, I can't manage the practice anymore. I have to wait and, and so on. But shortly after, I did see an, an uptick. Persons regained their confidence and started signing up for subscriptions. And surprisingly, this time of year, I'm seeing a lot more persons coming on and starting their businesses. So I, I believe it was just a short-term panic, but but so far I, I'm really seeing an uptick of persons actually regaining confidence and, and getting a lot more clients on. Which is great. And that also means that there are clients coming in. That means there are companies yep. hiring, right? And students, um, a lot of students still coming in and our borders, they, 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 they tend to let in some persons now. So it's not as closed off as the U.S. So I know a lot of students are coming in. 
a lot of persons within Canada, they're actually submitting their applications for permanent residency and so on. So we are seeing some uptake with that. That's really exciting. Um, that's so cool. And, and we're going to get to sort of what KCZ is doing for the industry right now and sort of where you're at. So, so Orin, tell me, you know, I think your story is really cool because I'm coming from the perspective of I was an immigration lawyer and then I became, you know, I, I sort of saw a need and I decided to start an immigration tech company. This was based on my experience as a practitioner, as a provider. Right. You, you come from a different the different side of things. You are a technology expert. You are an IT guru, if you will. Um, but before even that, you know, you're from originally from Jamaica, right? Um, yeah. And you did go to undergrad in, in Jamaica, right? Yes, yes, I did. So can you can you talk a little bit about that? I guess I, I've never personally been to Jamaica. Um, yeah. Can you share a little bit about what it was like kind of growing up there? Why did you decide to go into technology and I don't know, what was it like? What was university like for you? Well, first things first, if you haven't been to Jamaica, please put that on your bucket list. It's a beautiful place. I I take my vacations in Jamaica and I grew up there, right? So it is beautiful. So I did do the undergrad studies, but it all began, I think, even before that, right? So I remember at around age nine, they're about my parents, they invested in a computer, Right. And back then it was Windows 95. I'm not sure if you 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 had access to that. So Windows 95. Uh, but then we had dial-up internet, we had floppy disk, but it was a very unique experience, right? At age nine, living in a third world country, having access to a computer, that was unheard of, right? To have access to a computer in Jamaica back then you literally would have to probably book book an appointment with um, a university or you'd have to check into a local library, right? So that's when I actually got my um, first taste of computing and technology. Uh, one of the things that got me started is that my parents, they, don't, they, they, they have never invested in video games, right? They don't believe in it. They believe in academia. And myself and all our, uh, my siblings, we all went to university. So they didn't buy me video games. But the second I got the computer, guess what I did? I loaded games, right? That was the first thing. Nine-year-old kid, right? So I loaded the games and I started using the computer and I realized that the computer had its own language, right? I could write special commands and it could understand me. And just being a curious kid, that's when I, I started doing a lot more research and start playing with the computer a bit more and really just reverse engineering how it worked. And that's where it began. So fast forward a few years later, naturally I would have enrolled into undergrad. So I, I, I did go to college first um, before going into university. Mm. Um, during my college studies, I actually studied electronics, electronics and computing. So that gave me an inside look as to how the computers actually worked, right? So I'd look at the circuit boards, we would mm. actually build our own circuit boards at some point. And that actually got me involved with the hardware um, side of things. Uh, so that we, I did that for about two years. And then afterward, uh, getting that hardware experience, I transitioned into university where I did my studies in enterprise computing, where I learned the different programming languages. And that's when I actually ventured into software development. When you, um, 
I, I, I love, I love the stories that are like, this is what you meant were meant to do since childhood. To me, that's so cool. Cause it's, it just means that this is truly an inherent interest, right? It's, it's right. not like, Oh, who pays the most money software engineer? No, you were like, I, I want to write code because I want to figure out how to play with this thing with this computer. Um, yeah, I, I, I also, um, had a computer oddly enough, when I was growing up, we, we had a computer as well. Um, for some reason, it was in my room. I don't know why. You were lucky. <laughs> yeah, I know. So, uh, but and we had Ameri- America Online, so that was like our version. Yeah. I remember receiving CDs, like video, like computer game CDs in the mail, the free trial, and it was or something mm-hmm. like that. It was really fun. That that's so that's so cool. Just to, just to clarify, so when you said you first went to college. And because I know that the verbiage is different in, in sort of right. in different places. Is that sort of like high school or was it sort of like pre-university? It's pre-university. Got it. Yeah, yeah pre-university. And, and how long was that for? That was an associate degree. So that was two years. Got it. And then you went to university for four or for two more to get the bachelor's? Well, well four years because it was an unrelated program. So I oh, couldn't wow. answer any other credits. Got so it. it was four, well, it actually took five years because I did it part-time while I was working. Wow. So I paid um, for tuition and everything else. But um, yeah, so it ended up being five years uh, for a focused track on software development. And what were you, what kind of job did you have while you were doing university part time? Well, I worked at the bank. So early okay. on, I, I got this bank job. And, and back then, any job, you just wanted to get a, a job, right? So yeah. I got a job at Scotia Bank. I I was a bank teller for about three years. Then I went into personal banking where I did a bit of uh, customer service and everything else. And looking back now, I believe that actually gave me an edge hmm. in terms of um, when I when I look back at the role of um, a teller and customer service, because Scotiabank, they're so focused on being customer centric, right? They invested a lot. To, to ensure that we were equipped to, to deal with customer queries and everything else. So I even recall a time when they sent us off to a boot camp, like a free five-day boot camp where all we discussed were customer, um, how to, to improve the customer experience, and we did role-playing and everything else. And we all focused on, on customer being customer-centric, right? And I believe that laid the foundation. Um, so, yeah, so I was in banking for a, a little bit. And that's where I wrote a lot of letters and all of those skill sets. I, I realized that those were actually foundational skills that that's helping me today. That's so cool. I always felt that way about retail. Um, I worked in retail f- during the end of high school and in college and you know, university. And yeah, same thing. I had to greet people regardless of what they said to me. I had to smile. I had to help right. them. And that sort of builds up the kind of momentum of being customer centric, I guess, as you said. It's a very useful skill, especially as a because most software engineers they go straight into software engineering. They, bypa- they bypass the whole customer centeredness. They haven't spoken to a one on one or are dealing with customer queries. So it's it's a it's a unique skill set that that um, I believe most software engineers uh, don't have the opportunity to to gain. So I found that very useful. For sure. So, so you're, you know, you're getting this experience is really valuable experience at the bank. You're, you know, you were in college and then uh, you eventually then went to university, you studied, graduated. Did you then, is that when you decided to move to the U.S. or what happened after you kind of graduated with this degree? Right. So after I graduated from, um, well, not to the U.S., you said to the U.S., so Canada. Sorry, to Canada. Right. To Canada. So after 
graduated from um, the university. I actually got a job from banking. I, I left banking and I went into IT because that's when I actually got the degree so I could actually practice and, and build and build systems. So I, I worked at this large insurance company in their uh, IT department. It's called Sagicorp. One of the one of the Caribbean's largest insurance companies, and that's where I actually got to build uh, enterprise systems, just systems that impacted other banking platforms, insurance platforms, and I got the experience there. So shortly after that, I decided uh, I actually would want to transition from software engineering to cybersecurity because that was a buzz back then. It was um, around um, twenty fourteen, thereabouts. Mm-hmm. So that was the buzz then. Everybody was talking about hacks in the media. And I, I wanted to see, okay, how can I create an impact in this industry, right? And that's when I decided, you know what, let me let me look for universities in Canada and, and see how best I can get there. What uh, made you decide on Canada at that time? Okay, so, well, I ruled out the U.S., for some reason, I ruled out the U.S. because back then with 9-11 and, and everything else that was happening, it, it just didn't seem like the right place to be, right? And and when I looked at Canada, even though I, I didn't have anyone here and I would be coming to a, a country that I didn't have any experience, it just seemed as if it was a, a good transition from Jamaica to Canada, mm. right? Uh, so it wasn't, it, it was just that I ruled out the U.S. and it was either the U.S. or Canada. So I just decided, let me... Let me go ahead with Canada. For sure. Um, so then you so you applied for university um, for, for a study permit, yep. uh, right, for, for Canada. And then you went to, where did you go? Where did uh, you end up going? Well, they changed the name, but it's now called Ontario Tech University. What was your experience like? You know, what, what was the move like? What was the immigration experience like going from Jamaica to Canada? Yeah, talk, can you talk a little bit about what you remember from that time? So, okay, so... First things first, the move to Canada was actually pre-planned five years in advance. I usually plan, I do five-year plans as to career and life and everything else, what that would look like. So when I did that five-year plan, I realized that within five years, I'd have to leave the company that I'm at and I'd have to transition to just for growth opportunities, right? Well, in doing the experience, I did everything myself in terms of um, researching the university, applying for immigration, but it was so much reading, right? I literally felt as if I was going for a law degree, but I had to read and interpret a lot of things. And it was a tedious process, right? Um, but that process wasn't too difficult. So I did everything online and got everything submitted and uh, got approved to the university. It, w- it was the only university that I applied to because I ruled out all the others and and the course that they offered it was really hands-on so I applied to that one and I got through and then I I submitted the immigration application um and and then yep I I I came to Canada so it it was nerve-wracking because you're leaving everything behind family friends everything but at the same time it was very exciting because I knew that uh well, I have this principle that if it if it causes discomfort, it's an opportunity for growth, right? So I felt uncomfortable about the moves. I knew that it would have been an opportunity for growth. And I just uh, I dived in and, and just did what I had to do. That's amazing. That That's so inspiring because it, it is hard to leave. It is hard to leave family behind, friends behind, 
comfort of a place, a physical place that you know, you you left a warm climate for a much colder climate, right? So even even that's a, a change, right? It's a, it's a sort of a difference. Cool. So so right. So you arrived. You know, you came. You're in Canada. You're you're getting your master's degree. You finish up the master's degree and you start to work in the cybersecurity space. Yeah. Right. What what was? Can you talk a little bit about that and sort of? I know you ended up kind of being a lecturer as well at the university, and then of course that somehow ended up this comfortable. I mean, this is what you came to Canada for. I mean, you you wanted to do cybersecurity. This whole you know it's a big and it's a growing field, and then you make this crazy big life change and pivot. Um, so what was it like working? You know, you finally doing the thing you wanted to do, and sort of do you remember that moment of? why you made that change and why you decided to pivot your career? Yeah, I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, right, so I did uh, started doing cybersecurity consulting with a friend of mine. He ran a, a cybersecurity and privacy company. So he would get some big government contracts. I'd help with them and 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 do, uh, we, we did primarily like threat and risk assessments and securing data assets and everything else for corporations. So I did that for a bit. Uh, shortly after, after I completed the master's, the university called me back to, to lecture a course. So I was doing both. I was doing the lecturing uh, during the day and and with, with whatever time I had, I was doing the, the cybersecurity consulting, right? Uh, shortly after that, I would have become qualified to then apply for permanent residency. So permanent residency, uh, I think in U.S. it's called like a green card. Mm-hmm. Right. So I would have been qualified to at least apply. And that's when I began doing research and saying, okay, what's the next step? How do I become a permanent residency, uh, a permanent resident and transition from a student? So that's when I started doing the research and said, okay, you know what? Let me let me see if I can call some folks and, and get some help with this. So I called a friend of mine and she said to me, you know what? Based on your questions, you probably need to speak with an immigration consultant. I was like, immigration consultant, what is that? I had no idea what an immigration consultant was or if that was a thing, right? So I got I got this contact from it for an immigration consultant and I called them up. They sent me everything via email. Um, they scheduled the appointment and everything was manual. So I looked, uh, they, they gave me Excel spreadsheets, they requested sensitive documents via email. And listen, I'm a cybersecurity expert. So... When I'm sending sensitive documents, I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm sending these documents via email. This is crazy. So I realized that everything was manual and I waited until the entire process was complete. And then I said, you know what? This seems to be a problem because this is my experience. I I felt all this friction and I had to be doing all these things manually, Excel spreadsheets, sending things um, in an unsecure way. And I said, there had to be a better way. And I, I drafted an email. I said, okay, if you had A, B, C, D, and if it did this for you, would you pay for it? And the consultant, she said, absolutely. When can I start? And I said, okay, it, it's not yet built. Just, just give me a few months. And that's where it began. That's where I got the idea. And I did that for a bit before I transitioned to it full time. And I, I left the role as a lecturer and the cybersecurity consultant and just focused on it. That's so amazing because if I took a step back and I and I looked at your career up until that point, you know, you had an undergraduate degree 
in computer science or systems engineering, right? You had a graduate degree in cybersecurity, basically. You were working in the cybersecurity space and already lecturing. I mean, to me, that is the pathway to like crazy success. <laughs> it's like, per- I mean, that's what everyone wants to do. Right. Uh, and and so, you know, it, it's so crazy to think that you were so moved by this, by this idea, right? And this kind of realization. Um, so you you told you, you told this consultant, hey, what if it was bad? Essentially, you you probably painted an amazing picture of what what if this is all automated? Um, and the consultant said that that would be amazing. Now, did you work with this consultant specifically to sort of map out the beginnings of what you know what would eventually become Casey, or did you kind of just look back at your own experience and then only reconnect with the consultant once you had something built? Well, all right, so this is what happened. So after I sent that email and I told them, you know what, it's not built yet, but I can build it. Would you want to participate? They pretty much said, oh, they don't have the time. So I'm mm-hmm. like, oh my goodness, where am I going to get this domain expertise? Mm-hmm. So what I did, I started to research, do my research. Uh, there are lots of online um, material in terms of when you're studying to become an immigration consultant, they have a lot of resources online. So I read through them and I reverse engineered the entire process. And I just did my did the first iteration. And funny enough, I called another friend and I was just telling them um, about a few things. And then she responding and say, you know what, Orin, I'm going to need a system soon. I just uh, got my immigration consultant li- license. And I'm like, what? You got your license? I'm like, I'm building a system. And then she said, wow, that, that's, that's coincidental. So she became my first client, right? Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, so... This is good. So she she actually gave me the, the domain knowledge that I needed and became the first uh, client. And that's where it all began. Was the company, when you first launched it, was it called Case Easier? Was it something well, else? It was, it was a, well, I brainstormed uh, the name for probably a week or two. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this isn't working. I just gave it a name. Back then it was called Canada Consult Portal. Mm-hmm. And we rebranded January of this year. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, Canada Consult Portal is very clear. I know what you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's niche. It, it's specific to Canada and it, it has consulting there and so on. So we went to Case Easy. Mm-hmm. It's more inclusive. A lot more lawyers are attracted to the platform now. And the branding, I think, is a lot better. So it was a good transition. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's always interesting. Um, so, so you had this. So you had this essentially initial client who kind of partnered with you from the domain expertise perspective, and, and you you worked together. When did you launch initially? Uh, June twenty seventeen. Oh, okay. And 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 you launched essentially with one with this one client, right? Yeah. Did you go back then to your once you were launched and live? Did you go back to your your initial like your consultant and say, "Hey, here it is." I did, but I didn't sign up for some reason. I don't know. Really? Yeah. Wow. Look, the person that got you inspired to do this. I tell you it's, it's amazing. I, I have no idea, but they inspired it. And um, the, the, the thing is, the, the problem was so compelling. I literally had to drop everything that I was doing. And my brain is wired to solve problems. So I just had to drop everything um, that I was doing and focus on it because I know I could add value to this space. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's that's fascinating. Are they still not one of your clients? Uh, no. <laughs> well, if you're watching right now. You better. <laughs> So, so you like you, you you're now live. You've got your basically your first customer, which is really was a built-in customer. Incredible. I mean, I think a lot of people would love to have that opportunity. How did you get your 
second customer, I guess your first, you know, I don't want to say real customer, but the first customer you had to approach with a product rather than with this sort of domain partnership thing. Um, How did you, yeah, how did that happen? And sort of how did you get the ball rolling? And I, I want to ask that question because I think, you know, now this industry is growing, it's booming in Canada, in the US, around the world. But the big question is always going to be, how do I make this business grow? How do I get my clients? So how did that work for you? Yeah, so I, I, the first thing I had to do, I needed to find out who my ideal customer was. And then I created a list of those persons. So it, it, I knew um, in terms of the demographic and then I researched their websites and got their contact details. And I sent out emails every day. Here's a system. This is what it does. These are the benefits. Uh, LinkedIn was was a, a, was great to, to do prospecting as well. Uh, one of the things that actually helped us in, um, tremendously uh, was actual trade shows, conferences. So mm-hmm. you, you know you have these um, conferences like the AILA in, in Canada. We do have similar conferences here. So that was one of the first things that I got involved uh, with was to just become part of the conference, be a sponsor, and get the name out there because you can have one of the best products, and if nobody knows about it, then... Is that the best product that nobody knows about? So I did everything that that was humanly possible to get the name out there. Did people come up to you? Like, did, did they come up to the booth and say, "Wow, what is this?" You know, let me. Can I learn more? Was it successful? Uh, were the conference? Oh yeah, successful? Oh, yeah. I, I think I think we made the other booth envious because persons were like, "Crowdy," I said, "Wow." And I'm putting this way: there's only one other provider in Canada. Well, at that time, was only one other provider. And they they haven't innovated in probably over a decade. Mm-hmm. So when when persons actually see a platform that's that's getting new features and it's it's growing rapidly, it's almost as if we we came with something brand new and innovative. So persons were really interested as to what we were doing. And when we go to trade shows and uh, our conferences, hundreds um, of leads are coming in. So it, it we did see a, a lot of attraction going to these conferences. That's really exciting. Did you have anybody with you, like at the booth? Did you have multiple people? Was it just you? Just yeah, just myself. Wow, that's. I, I talk about this all the time. Person say, "What does CEO mean?" I say, "Okay, it's Chief Everything Officer, right?" Oh, yeah. I literally have to be doing everything. So yeah, that's that's that must be so tiring because you have to just field questions and talk to people all day. Well, when you when you're energized by it, it it's you hardly feel it. You feel it probably after the conference is done, and you're like, oh. <laughs> right but uh during the conference here it's just high energy yeah for sure so you know th- so this was around 2017 that you launched so i'm I'm assuming you were doing something you started probably going to conferences as early as you could yeah can you go a little bit into kind of what case easy does because there are there are different types of technology solutions within the immigration space uh-huh. and so i guess you know maybe for folks to kind of understand who who your target market is like who do you support and and sort of what kind of service do you provide yeah sure so we help immigration practitioners automate their practice, right? So we automate the full spectrum of work, right? So from compliance to accounting, invoice generation, client communication, document management, notes management, task management. So it's really an all-in-one product. And one of the reasons why I decided to build it like this, I realized that the average immigration practitioner, they use three, four, five products to manage their, their, their practice, 
right? So we wanted to build a single solution that persons could just sign in and, and get things done in the most efficient way. So I joke about this all the time. If we split up all the features that we have, we could have probably 10, 20, 10 15 different product lines that we could launch. But we, we're creating a, a real ecosystem of products that can help uh, immigration practitioners run their practices efficiently. And so you're, it's solely Canadian immigration, right? In terms right. of the forums. Yeah, the focus right now is Canada. And um, the reason for that is I want to ensure that I build the best product for Canada first before I focus on anything else. And focus is super important at this stage. Yeah, absolutely. And and so now, and like we were saying kind of earlier on in the beginning, you know, Canadian immigration is, it feels like it's booming. It is, yeah. Yeah, so it, it makes sense for there to be more, you know, solutions, and especially from a technological standpoint, especially because now there are a lot more people, practitioners working from home. Yeah. Um, so there's just, you know, you need something that will allow you to be digital, it'll allow your practice to be digital, whether you're a solo or you have a whole team behind you. Um, and so, I don't know, can you talk a little bit about maybe um, the the growth so far and, and kind of uh, what, you know what are what are the things that you're thinking are a priority? Maybe what what your clients are seeing is a priority because there are so many different ways you can probably go uh, in terms of building out any platform. So I'm just kind of curious, especially as the Canadian immigration um, market gets bigger. I'm right. curious to hear kind of what your thoughts are on um, how Case Easy has tracked that growth or or how you want to track that growth. You know, sort of how does that look for you? Okay, so growth has been good in terms of persons who have discovered our product over time. I think it was either yesterday or the day before we had our 1,000th install, right? So for each person that signs up, a database instance is created. So we had our 1,000th database instance. So that blew my mind. Like, wow, we we, we are there already. Uh, Right, so we're, we're definitely seeing that level of growth and uptake in terms of persons wanting to adapt an online platform. Uh, we're actually see going. Uh, so Canada's immigration and landscape, it's just as complex as the U- United States, right? So I believe that we have about 80 to 100 different immigration streams. And each of, each of those would have different nuanced requirements. So what I'm seeing, I'm seeing a lot of different firms coming on and they want very specific customizations to their firms. And just thinking, thinking about it, based on the combinations, it's almost impossible to satisfy all those needs. So what I have decided to focus on over the last few months, we're building the tools that help to build the tools, mm. right? So what that means, I, I, Elon Musk is doing something similar with his Gigafactory. He's working on the, the robots that actually helps to build the vehicles, mm. right? So we're building actual tools that we can then um, give these tools to the immigration practitioners and say, okay, you want to build something, you can actually build your own custom solution and then plug that into our backend. So, right, so I'm focusing a lot of my energy on the tools because I see uh, that's where we're going to actually be able to grow exponentially by giving giving that empowering our end users with with that uh, with the tools themselves to help them to, to build their own customizations in the, in the platform. Is it kind of like a lot? Is it kind of giving users the ability to customize their own user experience, the interface, or the different modules that they have? The different modules, the interfaces, forms. 
So for instance, if you want, uh, you have a very uh, specific form and you want to, to add different questions or different question types, you should be able to do that. Right now, it takes us a bit of time to do that in the back end because we have to go through the codes, have to recompile, but we want to make you, um, to empower you to do that in real time so you can create your own custom fields and build out your own forms and get, get that data in as quick as possible. Got it. Yeah, no, that that's great because to your point, I mean, I see it on the same, I see it in the same way on the U.S. side. Um, every immigration law firm, even if they do the same type of work, their workflow is a little bit different. The, yeah. the questions they ask, like the little nuances, and I think empowering law firms to be able to work with their nuances rather than change their practice to fit your technology is a really powerful. You know, first of all, it's a power, powerful selling point for them, yep. but I think it's also a powerful experience, right? It's a really positive experience. Yeah. So I'm um, just focused primarily now on the foundational stuff. So get the foundation right, and then we can we can grow the product as much as we want afterwards. Absolutely. It's it's almost it's almost uh, it's almost never ending, like the growth from that perspective. Yeah. Uh, we we have a, a sort of a question here from Ken. It's a big, so I'll hide it in a second. When it fits the discussion, um, trying to understand where you're going in terms of assessments, what programs are you going to push deeper into PNPs, um, et cetera. So I know, so PNPs, provincial nominee programs, right? That is sort of the state or province-based kind of immigration program that you have that's layered on top of the federal uh, yep. system. It, it's some, We don't have this in the U.S. In the U.S., it's all federal. I think there has been a push to have you know, some regional immigration availabilities because, you know, what the Midwest and the U.S. needs is very different from what the, the coast regions need. Um, right. so Canada has that. I don't know. What are your thoughts about sort of case easy working with all these different types of programs? Right. So it ties back into to what I was just talking about in terms of the tools that help to build the tools. Mm -hmm. So given that we have all these different PNP programs, we first have to build like I'll get the form builder tools out so you can actually build your own PNP uh, assessment forms right so to answer your question Ken that's what's coming next we're building a form builder tool where we can have these these uh, PNP assessments done in a few minutes rather than you having to wait a week or two weeks for us to customize on your behalf so it's just building out those tools and then empowering the immigration community to be able to to make those customizations on their own. So in a sense, it's like if the Canadian government rolls out a new program, unless it's wildly different, in a sense, you probably would be flexible enough to just be able to manage that as well. Right. What are you seeing in the uh, in the Canadian immigration space in terms of um, practitioners? So do you, are you seeing like an increase in, in people actually doing the work? Because, you know, I'm thinking about it from... You know, your perspective is you're the technology side. You obviously need the practitioners as clients. And then there's the back end of it, which is the government saying we're doubling down our, on, on our immigration goals. We're going to hit the 300 plus thousand uh, you know, new immigrants a year. And that's, I think, right. that's permanent residence, if I'm not mistaken. So probably when you... Yep. Right. So when you tack onto that temporary work visas, you tack onto that study permits, et cetera, you're going to have ton of people coming in. Do you see more people coming into the practice, whether consultants or lawyers? Yeah, that, that trend will continue because the immigration landscape, it's so complicated. It's it's very difficult for someone from India to go on the government 
website to interpret all those clauses and to submit the right documents. And for you to make a mistake in immigration, it's, it's very costly. It's going to cost you either time or money. And persons don't have that. So it's best to, to align yourself with an expert, right? In most industries, we, we don't do things ourselves. We rely on experts. So I, I would say definitely in the years to come, a lot more immigration practitioners are coming on and helping um, based on the volume of immigrants that, that's coming in. How do you feel then about some of these kind of, you know, the, the kind of turbo tax for immigration uh, platforms? Because it's, it's, you know, there's, there's room for both. That's my opinion. There's room for both in the market. There are always, like, think about it for you. When you came here on a study permit, if there was like a DIY, you know, Canadian immigration platform, you probably would have used that because you did do it yourself. Um, right. But of course, once it came time for permanent residency, it was you realized, okay, maybe that's a little bit more complicated or I don't have the time I had before to do it myself. So I would rather work with an expert, whatever there might be. Um, so just curious to hear your thoughts as somebody who's obviously very much in the space, but you're more so supporting the practitioners. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about that other side of it? Well, there's definitely room for automation and AI to help uh, immigrants to navigate the immigration landscape. That's definitely there, but that's just a fraction of the market. You'll you'll have a lot more uh, complicated immigration matters that you definitely need to have a discussion to determine even what immigration program you should be looking at applying to, right? And there's always going to be room for automation and for having that live live assistance and, and getting that expert oversight. Uh, so I, I believe it's it's about preference at this point. And uh, because the immigration landscape is so complicated, I don't see any system right now being able to cover, to have 100% coverage of all the different complications in the immigration system. So there will always be both. Yeah, I, and I, I definitely feel the same way. You know, it's just interesting because you hear sometimes people say, that one of is, one is going to take over the other, and there, there's 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 a lot of tension I feel across immigration uh, the the immigration technology sp- spectrum I guess right um, and so I, I just always kind of find it interesting to dive into that because I to your point I I think there is absolutely room for everyone in in a sense there is this you know it's kind of I mean not to use this analogy but it's like we know how many we have a number of how many COVID cases there are right now only based on how many tests we can administer. Correct. Um, essentially only based on how much technology we have to test everybody. Mm-hmm. It's it's a bad parallel, but it's a very current parallel for me right. of like, there are definitely way more immigration cases right now that aren't seeing any kind of platform because either the platform doesn't exist or they don't know about it. And so the market is actually growing as the, I think, tech grows because it gives more people an opportunity to support themselves and actually file for their you know, work permit or file for their permanent residency or whatever it might be. Whereas before they might have given up, right? Because they didn't have the money, they didn't understand how to do it, et cetera. Um, we've got a question here, how it's been categorized uh, based on the wide stream of engineering skills to, to the requirement of the Canadian market acquisition. I I I I think the question here is a little bit about immigrants, I suppose, coming into Canada. I, I'm not sure I understand this question. Um, right, and we're not we're not focused on the the um, the immigrant side of things. Right. Yeah, and I think that's a that's an important distinction to make. Right, um, that you provide support to the immigration 
attorneys and consultants. Uh, and so if an individual is interested in coming to Canada and understanding their immigration options, they can come to you and maybe you can refer them to somebody, but you're not the one who's doing that actual work. Yep. Also, Ken here had a note saying the next RCIC, which is the kind of uh, registered Canadian immigration consultant, right? Did I get that right? Yep, yep, yep. Nice. Uh, has over 800 people writing it in November. So I guess that uh, this is this is a lot. And if they have four annually, that's that's a good number of people. And so, of course, every every immigration consultant can start their own practice, I assume, or you know, can join a firm, et cetera. So right. the space is booming. Um, so what do you what do you see about the future of of the company? I mean, you know, one thing we mentioned, okay, right now you focus on Canadian immigration. I, I don't know, do you see yourself moving into other parts of the world? Do you see yourself moving outside of immigration? Sort of how do you feel? How do you feel about that? Yeah, so I'm a first principles guy. So I believe just doing first things first, which is ensuring that I I solve the problem well for the Canadian immigration community. Once that's done and everybody says, yes, Orin, you have done a terrific job and there's nothing more to do in Canada, then I may, may look at, at other industries that I can add value to. Uh, but it's all about the problem that's being solved, right? So I don't just look to industries, I look for problems, right? And if it's something that I believe I can add value to, and if it's a meaningful enough problem, then definitely I would would look at solving for that. But for the next foreseeable future, next three, four years, it's definitely Canadian immigration that's going to be our top focus. That, that's good to know. And I'm sure that makes Canadian immigration lawyers and consultants feel good because it's yeah. like, okay, you're in it for the long haul. So, you know, fine. So in terms of KCZ, what are you, what are your thoughts in general about the global immigration tech market? Um, Cause I mean, I know I've last week I had the, the founder of an, of a German immigration tech company. Yeah, yeah. And that was really interesting, right? It, it was like help is inbound into Germany. And so I'm, I'm realizing, and I think we've all realized this, that there, every country obviously has their own immigration laws and processes. There is the um, opportunity to have technology across at least, let's say the top 50, let's say by number, right? There has to be an economies of scale. You can't, you're not going to build technology for something that is very, very low um, in terms of volume. Um, but I don't know, what, what do you think about the sort of broader global market of immigration tech, whether the DIY, DIY side or kind of the case management side? Yeah, well, one thing I've realized for sure is that all immigration um, streams, they, they seem to be complicated, regardless of the jurisdiction, right? So there's always going to be an opportunity to disrupt the industry and to bring new technologies to help to streamline the processes. Yeah, but for some reason it's complex. It's complex, so I don't see that going anywhere soon in terms of the technologies that are being deployed. As to where it's going next, given the this whole lockdowns and everything else, and everybody moving virtual, I don't know. I really have no idea where it's going to end up. But if if it does uh, get back on stream and a lot more borders begin to open, um, it's just going to continue to grow. A lot more persons are going to get in the space of. Uh, deploying that technology, whether it's the uh, do-it-yourself uh, stream or it's building the back-end tools to support immigration practitioners, that, that's just going to continue to grow as time progresses. Do you think it would be an opportune time right now to sort of overhaul the global immigration program? I mean, in a sense, there's 
very relatively very low volume of people moving around the world. You know, if it was me, obviously every country has their own uh, governments and, and things like that. But if it was me, it's like, all right, everybody, we're, we're very low on numbers. Let's all gather and talk about, can we do something to streamline global movement? It's a discussion to have. I'm not sure how feasible it's going to be, though, to get all that cooperation and getting everybody to, yeah. to agree to something like that. But uh, each jurisdiction, they, they, they have so much complications within their, their processes alone. It's going to really take someone on the ground that understands the whole immigration system and can be there and, and work with government officials to help to streamline some of the processes. Yeah, for sure. And then, you know, you see treaties and, and things like that, where at least some countries come together and say, OK, let's make it really easy to travel between the two of us. Right. Um, what you know, it sounds like from just hearing from your story, it, it almost sounds like you jumped from success to success. And I know there are a lot, you know, you're the chief everything officer. So <laughs> I know that in between uh, the successes are long nights. They are really tiring conferences. You know, it's it's the the you know the debugging and the taking call you know client calls. What are you know? Did you have any bumps in the road? I mean, and if you didn't, maybe that maybe not. Maybe that's just it's a lot of hard work and a lot of wins. But I don't know. Did you have any bump, mem- memorable sort of bumps in the road where you either thought, I don't know what what's going to happen, what am I doing, etc. Yeah. Well. For sure, there has been a lot of hurdles, right? Um, and, and by the way, if there were no hurdles, then it would have been too easy and I probably wouldn't be interested enough. Uh, yeah, but there has been a lot, a lot from the technology side and you start to see issues as you start to grow and um, it's just to address the things as quickly as they come up. Um, in terms of something memorable, um, no, I, I, I don't have, there's nothing that really stands out that I say this was a roadblock. That, that I couldn't um, overcome. Yeah, but everything, I just took it one day at a time and just solved the problems as they, they arose. So it, it's just being consistent. Mm-hmm. You have a very Zen outlook of being a CEO one day at a time. You tackle the problems as they come. <laughs> I mean, sure. I guess it's, the, it's one of the only ways to kind of stay, uh, stay sane, right, while you're doing this crazy entrepreneurial journey. Well, one of the things that helps me um, is based on how I triage the different problems. How, how do you prioritize, right? Because in any given day, you have 10, 20 different things that you could be doing. So I try to systemize my decision making as much as I can. So when I get a task, I then categorize them and say, okay, is this an urgent task? Is this uh, an important task, but uh, low priority? And just put them in different buckets and work on them. And I find that to work. When you have systems that help you not to think too much, but to just get things done and get things prioritized, it really helps to to move things along faster. What would you say to somebody who maybe, you know, whether in the Canadian immigration space or anywhere in the world is thinking, hey, I'm seeing a problem in the immigration process, whatever it might be. Right. Um, I mean, what do you what do you say to someone like that who might not feel the confidence right now to leave their leave their cushy comfortable you know growth trajectory job and and kind of go at taking a stab at you know kind of building something what what do you what would you say to somebody like that really which is you back in 2016 2017 i would say stop think twice <laughs> it, it's 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 very very <laughs> that's what i would tell them i would tell them listen it's, it's going to be an uphill battle you should be very careful um, but what I would say to that person is to ensure 
that you you have sufficient funding, you have the, the subject matter expertise, and whatever time in your head that you think it's going to take, if, it, if you think it's going to take one year, just multiply it by 10, right? It's going to take a lot longer and you're going to need to deploy a lot of patients in the process. So yeah, so it, at this stage, it's just about your risk tolerance and um, your threshold to pain. So what, once you have those intact, then you can you can attempt to do it. Or uh, the smart thing to do would probably be to find someone who is doing something similar and partner with them and see if you can add value there as well, rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. Have you, you know, because you mentioned funding, you've not taken any outside, any kind of institutional no. funding, right? Right, fully bootstrapped. And that, that's by design. Yeah. Is, is that something to ever consider, you think, or you, you don't know? I will consider it, but um, one of the reasons why I've opted to bootstrap, it, it, it's just something psychological to have your back against the wall and have to figure things out, right? So if I don't add value to my customers, we're not getting paid. It's that simple. When you take venture um, capital too early, you sometimes get comfortable. You don't discover what your business model is. And you're spending up all these VC money thinking that you're successful when you haven't really discovered what your business model is. So I'm very adamant in solving for that and figuring it out and growing the company organically. And then when we're ready to really scale, we can bring VCs on and say, okay, this is the true valuation of the company. And we have a, a good enough track record to, to attract um, good VCs and to reduce our dilution in the process. Yeah. And it's kind of like at that point, you've figured out to at least some extent your business model, you have maybe a vision of the big things you need to build. And it's like, okay, I just need more resources to, to, yeah, to get this done. Whereas to your point, I guess it is, and this isn't always the case, but it can be the case where you get money up front and then you're just like, you know, you're not really sure which direction to take it actually. And when you raise money, you do have to spend it typically by some period of time because they want to see that you're, so you might end up building for the sake of building because you have a time crunch and, you know, this Roman, if you get VC funding and you're just building, 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 or you're just going in a particular direction, you better be careful that you're actually going in the right direction because you're Mm -hmm. putting ahead at a hundred miles per hour in, in the wrong direction. Right. When you're bootstrapped, you have a bit more time, you can process things, you can listen to your customers more, and you can be more certain that you're going in the right direction. When VCs come in, they tend to tell you a bit more what they would like to see and end up taking the company um, probably in, in the wrong direction. So I'm very adamant on executing my vision first. And then when I'm ready to scale up, I can I can look at outside investors. And and you know, sort of Somewhat related to one of the questions we were talking about in terms of you being the CEO, you had that technical expertise and you partnered with a, a Canadian um, immigration professional. Paula says here, excellent advice, although I'm on the opposite side. I have the subject matter, but lack the technical expertise. This happens a lot. I mean, this was the boat I was in, right? right. I Okay, I know a little bit of HTML, a little bit, but that's not going to be enough to build a platform. So. I had the subject matter expertise. I spent a lot of time learning enough about technology to first be able to even translate my idea to a technical person. Right. And then of course, I had to find a technical person. Do you think that you know someone like Paolo or anybody else uh, who has an idea coming from the SME side, but not from the technical side, 
what are what are some options you think or or some feasible ways they can go forward with trying their idea out? Uh, well, well, the first thing is to ensure you read the book Lean Startup. Right, that book is going to save you a ton in terms of financing and and what you focus your energies on. Uh, so the Lean Startup methodology it actually shows you how to build products and MVPs and get it to market and test it before you actually do any type of big investment. So it is possible. You could actually find a lot of uh, talented persons on Upwork or any of these freelancing platforms. You invest a, a little bit of money to get the MVP out there and, and you can test your ideas before you invest in building the, the, the big solutions. So yeah, so it's definitely feasible, but it's just how you go about deploying the capital and building out that MVP and getting that that validation. Yeah, an MVP, minimum viable product. Just viable product. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, definitely agree. Right, you can even kind of pay someone just to build a wireframe to build what your thing might look like so you could visualize it and say, mm, I thought it might be X, but I'm actually, I don't love it. Or if you do love it, then you could say, all right, I'm going to put more time, money, you know, whatever, uh, into continuing to build it out. Yeah, definitely. Lean Startup is a great book. Um, there's another question here um, from Marco Scano, who says, you're so right. When you're getting paid, you have to deliver value. And then Marco asks, what's the number one action that founders should focus on to figure out what their business model is? I think what you had said was, well, if you're taking VC money, you're not as, you're not as, uh, pressured in a sense to find a business model. And, and it sounds like pressure is not a good thing, but it is hard to find a viable business model. There are people, you know, not every business model makes you the money because you have to figure out how much it costs to deliver the service. Right. So, so what's, what's your advice on how to figure out what a business model should be and like how founders can figure that out? Sure. Uh, so, right. So you, you need a lot, you, you need faster feedback loops, right? So meaning when I look at a startup, a startup is really a series of experiments. So as a founder, it's your duty to execute those experiments in the fastest possible way and to get feedback. So that's the first thing. How do you get feedback in the fastest possible way? Get your customers involved. I, I don't build anything these days without first hearing from my customers. So they tell me what they want, and I have to hear from five, 10 customers validating that that's what they actually want. And then we deploy resources to get it built. So just having that relationship with the customer, listening, taking feedback, and getting um, that feedback in as quickly as possible, I believe that's how you discover your business model. Because if you execute enough experiments in series, you you will discover something that works. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So basically, if if uh, if one client suggests something, don't necessarily jump on it right away and deploy all of your resources because you kind of have to be um, judicious with where you spend your time, your energy, your your money, um, your people. Yeah. 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 That's that's uh, that's really great advice, and probably it's hard, right? Because I, I imagine a client asks for something, it's especially in the beginning, you don't want to say no. I mean, you want to say yes. You want people to be excited. Well, guess what? I've, I've, as I mentioned earlier, I try to systemize a lot of things, right? So when persons ask for feed, they have, they make feature requests. I, back in, in university, we learned uh, an ethical framework. It's called the utilitarian approach. 
And it, it pretty much says that how do you create the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people, right? So that's the, that's the mindset that I have. So if, if you ask me for a feature request, Roman, I'm going to validate that with 10, 20 other customers that is this something that's going to be useful? And then I, I'm going to get that built. But if you're just asking something spe- um, specific to your practice, it may not be the best use of time to because it's not going to impact a lot of users at the same time. So I have to get that validation and that um, upvote of the, the feature request before we go ahead and build. Do you have that conversation with the, you know, has that happened to you where you had to say, look, this is a great idea. Um, let Do you say to them, let me talk to a few other customers or do you say like, well, that's not what I say. Right. What we actually do, we, we, we take those ideas and put it in, into our platform and then we track it over time. And then based on, we can we can get a lot more requests and say, okay, this feature request has gotten three requests. I guess it's something important and then we build, right? But we take all the feedback and we'll put it into our system and that helps us to organize it and de- determine what are the ones that we should be focused on. Do you think that there's any room for, let's say a client says, Lorraine, I want something very specific. I will pay you to build it. Well, as utilitarian approach, is it going to create the greatest good for the greatest amount of people? If the answer is no, then it's not something I could do right now. So I would I would turn it down because it's not, if it's not going to be impacting mm-hmm. a lot more persons, that uh, money that's going to be um, spent and the resources that's going to go into um, building that one feature for this one firm, it may not create the impact that we want. And if that firm leaves a year or two years from now, then we're stuck with that feature that nobody else wants. Yeah, and That's how I have to process um, some of these uh, things. And that's why I'm building the tools to let them build their own customized tools. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Because, you know, it, I, I'm thinking about that question myself, too. I would probably say, well, how much? <laughs> right? Because um, to your point about being utilitarian, it's possible that that building that feature for the one client can help you fund building additional features for the greater number of clients. Yeah, um, but it's true. But the, the, the time, the time it is going to take, right? You can't put a price on the time and the opportunity cost. Right. It's going to take you a month to build that product. What else could you have been doing in that time? Right. So I'm always looking at that and saying, okay, if I say yes to this product, to this um, product request, what am I saying no to? Mm-hmm. So I'm always looking at it from those two sides because it's almost dualism. Um, you'll always have something that's contradictory. So you say yes to something, there's going to be an equal no to something else, right? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, no, this is really great advice. Um, really, really wonderful, kind of philosophical, but also very practical, I think, on the other hand. Um, so, you know, one final question for you, I guess, is what are you excited, like what are you most excited right now? about, you know, whether it's with KCZ specifically or maybe Canadian immigration, immigration tech more generally? Well, well, with KCZ, I'm, I'm just happy about the, the products that we're going to be launching over the next few few weeks. Uh, Q4 for us is when we actually focus on getting all the different product ideas that we weren't able to get out um, over the rest of the year. So we focus on building and, and releasing a lot, lot more features. Um, there's one in particular, which is probably one you're alluding to, I'm not sure, um, that we're working on now. That's, um, it's our electronic signature platform. Uh, so that's something I'm super excited about because it's really it's going to help uh, immigration practitioners be able to sign in their browsers on their mobile devices. That's something that we're rolling out pretty soon. And um, that, that's, that's very exciting for me. 
And so that's e-signatures in order for people to just go right in the platform. Yep. Make, and, and is that connected to KCZ or? Is it's going to be a subsidiary. Um, and we, we, we'll, we'll make integrations in the platforms for yep. them to speak to each other. But it, it, it had to be a separate product because we do intend on allowing other verticals to utilize the feature. Got it. Um, the, the software, yeah. That's really exciting. Um, I we did have one more question come in um, from Josh Shacknow, fellow immigration tech um, entrepreneur. How have professionals or have professionals been open to and welcoming of your tech for the space? You know, professionals being whether immigration lawyers or consultants, are they open to this? Do they? You know, how do they? How do they feel about it in general? Well, they're excited. As I mentioned before, uh, they, they didn't really have any more alternatives. When we do demos and uh, uh, during the demos, we get a lot of wows. Wow, you guys built all of this. Right? So persons are really excited to know that we, we have a turnkey solution. You can literally get your practicing license today and get started, get your clients, get payments, communicate online and do all of this out the box, right? Mm-hmm. Before you'd have to spend a, a lot of time signing up for this system, that system, but it's just one platform now. So we're really making it easy persons to get started that's so cool yeah that's great and i'm not i'm not surprised at all i mean for for immigration practitioners to see cool tech is is it should be wow because this is not the most cutting edge industry generally speaking uh, but i think folks like you and others just are, are are trying to build up the standards of what practitioners should expect frankly from technology that they get uh, that, that, that's super exciting I'm really, really pumped for your growth and really pumped for, you know, not just case easy, but of course, uh, immigration in Canada in general. Uh, I wanted to kind of end on a more of kind of a fun question. And I'm curious, do you miss now that you haven't been able to travel or or can you travel? I was going to ask, do you miss Jamaica? Oh, I miss Jamaica every day. That's where all my family is, right? And I, I get the nicest food, the nicest weather in Jamaica. So of course, yeah, I can travel, um, and I'll, I'll I'll do so as soon as I can. So yeah, so that, that that's definitely something in the making. But definitely, I, I miss Jamaica. Before you ask your other question, I just wanted I always like to add value, right? Sure. And I'm reading some good books now. Um, probably your audience could get this. I'm not sure. Can you see? Tomaker Habits. Atomic Habits, yeah, that's by James Clear. James Clear. It's a super useful book. It, it helps you to create good habits and and to stick to tasks. And another one that I I rely on. It's almost like a the Bible for for entrepreneurs. It's Blue Ocean Strategy, right? So this shows you literally a blueprint as to how you go into an industry and to 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 add significant value and to grow a company. So these are good books that I recommend. Love it. Wow, that's huge. I've never uh, I've I have we haven't had any guests recommend their books um, yet. So maybe this is something we should start. Uh, well, Arane, thank you. This was so awesome. Um, really loved hearing about everything you've built so far in your journey and uh, um, everything you're doing for the Canadian immigration space. And just really excited. I'm excited to see the growth of the industry outside of the US. And then, you know, hopefully we'll get outside of North America as well. You know, Canada's, there's so much happening. Let's, let's have more growth. Okay. Um, so thank you for sharing your story and for sharing your tips and spending your time. Thank you, Roman. 